What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? What the hell is going on this week, Mark? Well, we're a day late in delivering our podcast this week because we wanted to wait with bated breath for the dueling press conferences of Vladimir Putin and President Joe Biden after the historic summit in Geneva. What do you think, Danny? How did Biden do on his first foray into U.S.-Russian diplomacy? Well, you know, this is meant to be a Joe Biden's sweet spot. Right. You know, all of our audience has heard, you know, Mark and me talk about our experiences with Senator Biden, Chairman Biden of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This is the reason that he was chosen to be Barack Obama's vice president was because he was sort of an eminence grise in an area that Barack Obama knew very little about foreign policy. And I got to say, it struck me first and foremost as weak and naive. And for a guy who's pretty fancy with his tough guy rhetoric, Joe Biden loves to talk tough, right? Loves to say those tough things. It's a killer. Yeah, it was a little wimpy. Here's my assessment of it. And, you know, you, we've had many discussions on this podcast about Donald Trump's Russia policies, and we were all appalled by the Helsinki summit where he stood next to Putin and said things that we don't need to repeat here, but that was, it was an embarrassment for our country. But Donald Trump, for all of his rhetorical weakness on Russia, was actually incredibly tough when it came to actual policy. He sold Javelin missiles to Ukraine when the Obama-Biden administration only would give them meals ready to eat. He talked about it on our podcast, and I interviewed him in the Oval Office. President Trump launched a cyber attack on the Internet Research Agency, the troll farm that was interfering in our elections. He gave U.S. forces a green light to kill hundreds of Russians and mercenaries in a firefight in Syria, which wasn't an easy decision to make. He got NATO members to increase their contribution contributions by $140 billion. And he expelled Russian diplomats. He withdrew from the INF Treaty. He did a lot of things. And also, he managed to stop construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And guess when it picked up? When Joe Biden came into office, they started construction again, and he lifted the sanctions, which is a huge gift to Vladimir Putin. So I like the tough talk. I wish President Trump's talk matched his actions. But I would prefer to speak softly and carry a big stick than uh, speak loudly and carry a twig. I think that one can reasonably debate how well Donald Trump did on this issue. But I don't think there's any doubt in the minds of the Russian leadership that they are going to have, to use Joe Biden's word, a much more predictable president in the White House right now. And that's good for them. You know, uh, Our colleague Hal Brands had a very good piece about how predictability only serves Russian interests because it basically puts the ball in their court to destabilize the world. You know, one thing Vladimir Putin doesn't want is to be the midget at the table as Xi Jinping and Joe Biden discuss the fate of the world. Right? He doesn't want to be an afterthought. And what the White House is basically signaling to him is, no, 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 you can be the spoiler. Mm-hmm. You can sit at the table with the big boys and you can misbehave and it will cause us to pay more attention to you. I think there was a lot of immaturity And I think there was a lot of naivete in this summit. 
you know, you and I both have discussed endlessly how happy our friends in the G7 are, how happy our European allies are that they can finally go back to eating brie and drinking Chardonnay in the way that they used to before that pig Donald Trump entered the White House. And it's clear we've gone back to that. The problem is that that sort of signaling has consequences. The first part of the trip, the summit with the G7 and the NATO allies, I mean, that was a layup. All he had to be was not be Donald Trump. And and our allies love not being pushed about meeting their 2% uh, GDP commitments on defense to the commitments to the NATO alliance. They love not being pushed on trade disputes. And I think they even uh, suspended one of the trade disputes that, that Trump had started with them. And Germany loves not being pushed to give up the Nord Stream pipeline. But the, again, these are gifts. The last one especially is a gift to Putin. You know, we had Dan Jurgen on the podcast last year, and he wrote a fantastic book about the shale revolution and the implications it is. And under Trump, America emerged as an energy superpower. We became one of the largest exporters of oil and the single largest exporter of natural gas. And one of the implications of that, and Jurgen pointed out on our podcast that one of the major critics of the U.S. shale revolution was somebody in Moscow named Vladimir Putin. You know, so when Russia cuts off gas through Ukraine in 2006, the Europeans weren't in a good position to deal with that. But now, because the United States provides an alternative through its production of natural gas and export of natural gas, they have an alternative to Russian natural gas, right? So what's happened under Biden? Uh, We are cracking down and trying to basically unilaterally disarm as an energy superpower and get rid of fossil fuels, which give us this edge. And at the same time, he's allowing Vladimir Putin to build this pipeline through the Baltic Sea. And why is that important? Because if you have a pipeline through the Baltic Sea, the before all Russian natural gas sales to Western Europe had to go through Eastern Europe. But if you can go directly to Western Europe, then he can squeeze Eastern Europe and cut off their natural gas without causing a rift with Western Europe or affecting their natural gas sales. So the combination of getting rid of the Keystone XL pipeline and facilitating the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is a double gift to Vladimir Putin. It's interesting to me that more people don't don't see it that way. And I understand that there's a, an obsession with, and in some cases justified, in some cases unjustified, with the you know fossil fuel impact on, on climate change. But We had uh, a good podcast on that, too. We did. In fact, for all of you who are looking for some background on Nord Stream 2 or on the Shell Revolution, I commend to you both our interview with Jonathan Swan, who did a great job uh, backgrounding everybody on what's happening with Nord Stream and also the Ukrainian perspective. He had just interviewed Ukraine. President Zelensky when we did that and Dan Jurgen's podcast with us. Uh, we'll link those both in the transcript if you're interested. You know, just a couple more words, and I don't want to step on our interview, which is super interesting, but a couple more words about the outcome of, of this summit. So, you know, yes, they talked about climate change. Yes, they talked a little bit about arms control because, you know, you can't have a meeting with the Russians without talking about arms control. But the other two big things they talked about were Russian cyber attacks on the United States, and all of you who couldn't get gas for about a week uh, on the East Coast should know that that was the result of a of a Russian cyber attack on Colonial Pipeline that the Russian government denied any knowledge of, and a subsequent Russian cyber attack as well on an infrastructure target. President Biden brought that up with President Putin and made clear that 16 areas of our critical infrastructure were off limits for Russian cyber attacks. I just you know, a little bit like that whole, you know, we're going to withdraw from Afghanistan on by 9-11 kind of a thing. I just ask myself if these folks at the White House and State Department oughtn't to more often stand in front of the mirror and kind of practice their presentation <laughs> and just see, you know, 
No, these six gene areas are off limits. Uh, okay. So what's not off limits then? The message from the Americans ought to be America's off limits. Right. Right? Not 16 parts of America, because God bless number 17 and on, right? You know, they're on their own, apparently, when it comes to Russian hacking. I don't know what number 17 is, but I feel really sorry for them, and I certainly hope I'm not invested in them. <laughs> because because that's pretty bad. But also, you know, it's not just this, this summit, but they made a big deal earlier in the week of signing an agreement with Russia on cyber hacking, which is kind of like signing an agreement with China on lab leaks. You know, it's like, they're the, they're the ones doing the cyber hacking. You know, we need John Stewart's expertise on this matter, Mark. <laughs> Exactly. But I mean, basically, we have, I was listening to Jack Keen this morning talking about this, and Jack knows better than anybody the awesome offensive cyber capability that we have developed over the last decade. And the message to Putin should be, not just if you touch these 16 places, if you launch another cyber attack from Russian soil on America, we are going to take out the entity that did it, and we're going to impose costs on you, and we're going to use that offensive cyber capability. Uh, I don't know if that was the message he received. But, but I don't know. it doesn't sound like that was the message he received based on his post-summit press conference. So uh, the other weird bit was the even sharper message. So there was cyber. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, 16 off limits. But then there was this message about Alexei Navalny. Now, you guys know we've talked a lot about Alexei Navalny, especially with Vladimir Karamorza, who was our guest on the podcast and his, is his close friend. Basically, Danny is saying, go back and listen to all of our previous yes, podcasts. Exactly. We've covered this area. We've we, covered this. All uh... we can do is talk about the same thing again and again. <laughs> so Alexei Navalny was, you know, first Putin attempted to, to murder him using nerve warfare. Then he imprisoned him. Then he watched him uh, become deathly ill in prison and only after substantial threats finally allowed him hospital care. But Biden chooses the word to describe the U.S. reaction if Alexei Navalny dies. He says to Putin, the American reaction will be devastating. I'm sorry, dude. You know, that's not credible. Well, especially since I believe those are, I'd have to go back and look, but those are if not the exact same words and very similar words to the words that Barack Obama said when he warned him not to invade Ukraine. I mean, you know, and take and seize Crimea, right? You and, do not want you, know, you do you not want to issue empty threats. And, and you, do and not you would think the Obama Biden world, and by the way, as you've pointed out many times on this podcast, the Biden administration is basically in foreign policy. The Obama administration continued because it's all the same people in these top positions. You would think that they would have learned about the danger of drawing red lines that you don't plan to enforce. I'm, I'm glad that he raised Navalny. Me too. Uh, I am glad that he made clear that it's a priority for the United States. It would have been a disaster if he hadn't raised it. I just hope he's got a plan for what he's going to do if and when Navalny dies in Putin's prison. I hope he does too. So this and more we are taking up with your colleague and mine, Mark, uh, Dr. Leon Aaron, who is the director of Russian studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's, everybody knows who Leon is. He's written extensively on these issues in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and in pretty much every other outlet. He is working right now on a book on Vladimir Putin, which I'm very excited about. And all of us remember his fantastic biography of Yeltsin, which really was a seminal piece of work. So here he is. Well, Leon, welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad to be here, Mark. We're glad to have you on this auspicious week. So we just uh, had the completion of the first Biden-Putin summit in the history of U.S.-Russian summits, going back to Reagan and Reykjavik and uh, the Nixon summits and all the rest. Where does this one rank? 
Putin is a wartime president. If you look at what he says to his people, how he structures the legitimacy of his regime around war with the outside world, very few things could be expected of the summit and every other summit with Putin. And I think replying to Mark's question, how that rates, I would say it rates below those two instances, the Nixon Brezhnev detente and the Gorbachev Reagan meetings, because the regime that Putin forged is not given to compromise with the United States. He needs the enemy. So, Leon, thank you, first of all, for joining us. I know you're really in in demand. You had a really good little, what journalists call a walk-up blog post to the summit, a cheat sheet, you called it. And you described the summit as a big domestic political boost for the Kremlin. You then went on and your bottom line said, and I'm just going to quote because it was very articulate, this represents a big legitimizing cost-free political win for Putin. Okay, that was your assessment beforehand. Before we even talk about the substance of what President Biden and Putin talked about, why are you saying that? Because just like it was in the Soviet Union, a meeting with the American president is in and of itself is a huge domestic boost for then the Soviet, now the Russian leader, The country is obsessed uh, with America, and there are fascinating reasons why. But it suffice to say that it defines itself, just like as the Soviet Union did, it defines itself on the world stage, its significance, its weight, by its uh, opposition to the United States, and by the respect that the United States pays it. And every time there is a summit, regardless of the substance, regardless of how successful or unsuccessful it becomes or turns out to be. It is a big win for a Russian leader or as it was for Soviet ones. So Putin got that summit and that legitimizing summit. He got a extension of the START Treaty. He got Nord Stream 2. What did we get? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I would would add to this, the timing was singularly inauspicious. In general, yes, you need to meet with all sorts of leaders, and that's the nature of diplomacy. But look at the sequence. An American president calls the Russian president a killer. The Russian president amasses 100,000 troops on the border of a neighboring European country and threatens a war. The American president calls for a summit. You don't have to be Ivan Pavlov to see how this conditions a reflex on Putin's part. Every time you threaten a war, every time you talk tough, every time you amass troops, America comes to you and asks to talk. As our past president used to say, going forward, I don't think this is a good precedent. Another thing that it shocked me that the United States sort of a priori seemed not simply willing, but almost enthusiastic to give away, along with our NATO allies. And remember, President Biden had a G7 meeting first, and he had a NATO meeting first. Then he met with President Putin in Switzerland. And the thing that he was also game to give away was the idea of Ukraine joining NATO. This is something Russia is absolutely opposed to. It is a huge priority for Ukrainian President Zelensky, who we theoretically are supporting against the Russians. And yet we've been completely unwilling to even extend the possibility of a process towards NATO membership. What do you think? 
Well, it goes with Mark's question as well. We prepaid <laughs> we, the ante. We fed the kitty rather robustly here. Right. No conversation even about Ukrainians' membership or a map, you know, the sort of the preliminary technicalities of admitting a country into NATO in some distant future. They didn't get that. We rescinded the sanctions on uh, Nordos too. And as you mentioned, there was apparently in the conversations with Putin, apparently there was some talk of Ukraine. But the real issue is how seriously he takes it. Remember, Danny, I know you're a student and a lover of of diplomatic history. Uh, 60 years ago, at the very same place, uh, almost at the same time, there was this disastrous meeting between a newly elected American president and one Nikita Khrushchev. And that president failed to impress Khrushchev. And two months later, the Berlin Wall went up. And a year and a half later, we had Soviet nuclear weapons on Cuba. Again, I hope the ghosts were not terribly aggressive or angry, and the echoes did not permeate the summit. But I just very much hope that Putin truly believes that Biden is strong and determined, and all those presumably warnings that Biden articulated will be taken seriously by Putin. Well, I mean, I'm not the only student of history here. Remember, so Putin can look back to that meeting between Khrushchev and Kennedy, but he can also look back to Yalta, in which the major powers got together and agreed to hand the fate of Eastern Europe off to the Soviet Union. You know, I don't want to overdraw these analogies, but here are the NATO members all getting together and kind of saying, eh, Ukraine, Georgia, whatever. Danny's thing about Yalta, that's Putin's dream. He can't wait. I mean, there was an episode going with the dream, but I'm not going to mention that this is a public show. Um, <laughs> hey, we've got you. an explicit rating. No, no, we're not going there. Thank you, Leon. <laughs> yes. um, a dream. And of course, you know, as my Russian colleagues say, he's constantly trying on Stalin's boots and Stalin's military coat. Yes, he wants to be there with the big boys and girls. And he actually mentioned this. So, yes, he would love to have this sort of thing. I don't think he's got it at this summit, but neither was he really slapped on the knuckles. And I think he continues to believe that this is a viable dream. This summit also came on the heels of Putin's proxy, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, basically hijacking an aircraft in international airspace and forcing it to land in order to seize a diplomat. I can't imagine, maybe you, you'll disagree, that that was done without Putin's foreknowledge and approval. And I know that the press reports indicated that there were two Rus- at least two Russians on that plane who got off in, in Minsk and never got back on. Do you think that that was a operation coordinated with Putin? And what does it say to give him a summit after that incident took place? Almost certainly, Mark. Uh, by the way, I, I, think, I think you just misspoke. It, it was a dissident, but it doesn't matter. The point is, in the Russian sort of security intelligence gossip that I gather, uh, it is almost now an article of faith that this could not have been done, A, without technical capabilities of the FSB or SVR, which is Foreign Intelligence Service of Russia. But also, even assuming that Belarus had those capabilities, which is very unlikely, without an explicit okay from the Kremlin. So yes, this is almost certain. And yes, you're right. This could be counted by Putin as yet another 
sort of uh, greasing of the skids before the summit. So let's talk a little bit about the aftermath. And this is one of the reasons why we're actually producing our podcast a day late is because we really wanted the opportunity to talk to you after Biden and Putin had come out and given their respective press conferences. We were force-fed this notion that Biden had, in a very manly fashion, refused to do a joint press conference with Putin like Donald Trump. And so you know, this was meant to be sort of a, a, a scene setter for us. This was going to be a tough, tough meeting. But what seems to have come out of it is, you know, a th- a very not credible threat on Alexei Navalny, some very troubling discourse on the question of critical infrastructure and cyber attacks, and some generic conversation about arms control. What do you see as, you know, substantively as the product of this summit? Danny, the deliverables were obvious from the very beginning. Two things. Uh, we are back to, what, 35 years pre-Gorbachev, where the basis of our relationship with Russia is arms control. That's it. Everything else is not just, not even the icing on the cake, because there's no cake, but there's just, you know, empty talk. My favorite, Danny, is, is the climate control or uh, climate, climate change. <laughs> I would love to see Putin's face when uh, Joe Biden describes the uh, New Green Deal at the time when Russia is collecting uh, billions of dollars to go far north. Uh, to become the biggest producer of liquidified gas and just invested $75 billion in expanding its coal uh, export capacity. So the first thing is we will be talking about arms control, uh, strategic weapons, where, by the way, we we did give them a pass on uh, hypersonic missiles. Um, uh, Putin has embarked on enormously expensive breakneck modernization of the Russian nuclear arsenal. You know, they just built Sarmat, which is the largest ever made strategic uh, nuclear weapon, uh, nuclear missile. Um, They have actually tested hypersonic missiles, which is a new generation of missiles. And um, obviously, hypersonic means that they they move with the uh, multiples of the speed of sound. Uh, Very, very dangerous. And as far as I could see, we're way behind them on that. All sorts of wonder weapons that Putin described, actually, in his address to the nation in 2018. So apparently, this is something that those you know, multilateral talks will touch on. But I can assure you that Putin is not going to give up any of this. So I'm not sure how productive those conversations will be. The return of ambassadors, of the two ambassadors, the Russian ambassador goes back to Washington, the U.S. ambassador goes back to Moscow. And uh, beyond that, I really don't see anything tangible. Well, worse than that, I mean, if you look at what the Biden administration said they wanted out of the summit is that they wanted the strategic stability and predictability, right? That's what America wants out of this. And presumably, they say that Russia would want the same. And so that's what we're trying to achieve here is just back to normalcy in our relationship, right? But our our colleague Hal Brands had a really interesting piece in Bloomberg where he basically said that Putin needs confrontation with the West for domestic reasons, that he will always put domestic stability ahead of international stability, and he pursues the former by undermining the latter. So doesn't when we make our hallmark of our success of this summit, strategic stability, normalcy, aren't we really giving the leverage to Putin because he can either deliver or withhold that stability by diktat? Well, obviously, you know, I think we we started our conversation by mentioning how the confrontation with the United States 
and the U.S. as the enemy that perennially besieging and attacking Russia, which Putin valiantly uh, defends, is the cornerstone uh, of his regime's legitimacy now that for 10 years uh, the Russian economy has a zero growth in incomes. So that's absolutely correct. Again, unlike Brezhnev or Gorbachev, although for different reasons, don't expect any detente from this regime. Uh, the regime is based on confrontation with the United States. You know, in terms of what will happen and how the perceptions are different or how the articulation of the results is different on both sides, I can assure you there are all kinds of victory marches on the Russian TV because this is a victory. In, in, in essence, this is an apology by the American president for calling Putin a killer. And we are now respected and talked to. And we are sort of, we, we're not back, of course, you know, it's not G8 anymore. I don't think even Putin could count on that. But we're back. America treats us as an equal. This is a huge boost for Putin. So one bit of good news is that one of Donald Trump's ideas was to revitalize the G8, which was the G7 by Russia. So, you know, uh, while I was not too impressed to see Biden on the stage, I was at least happy not to see anybody <laughs> revive that <laughs> idea. But there were two other sort of substantive matters that, that came out of this summit. And, well, I was struck by both of them without uh, leading the witness here. One was that um, Biden says that he told Putin that certain areas of what he called critical infrastructure in the United States had to be off limits for cyber attacks, and that he outlined 16 entities that he described as, as critical infrastructure. I got to say, you know, my first impression was, and I think Mark said this to me before the podcast, is, damn, I'd hate to be number 17. What does that mean? <laughs> um, but but, but I, what do you think Putin reads into that sort of a laundry list of, hey, here's what you're not allowed to cyber attack? Well, Danny, I, again, it goes back to the core issue and goes back to Khrushchev's perception of Kennedy. Does Putin believe that Biden is capable of carrying out, presumably, some sort of sanctions or threats of response to Russia's attacks on those 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 uh, objects. In fact, what got me a little uh, upset is that, the, I mean, instead of saying don't touch our any of our systems, just don't do cyber attacks. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. It's a little strange. Uh, I'm told, and you guys probably know better, I'm told that those mysterious buildings around McLean, we have the world's largest capacity, cyber capacity, uh, cyber war uh, capability. Maybe, you know, something needs to be done to, to, to make that point really relevant to Putin. Well, there's a president who did do that. <laughs> Donald <laughs> Trump launched a cyber attack on the Internet Research Agency. So we know it can be done if there's will in the Oval Office. But look, I want to exit question for me is I want to ask you about Biden apparently told Putin that if Alexei Navalny dies in prison, that, quote, it would be devastating for Russia. That strikes me as a fairly empty threat. But what do, what do you make of it? Well, you, you know, uh, Mark, some of my friends, my, some of my friends from my Soviet days and Vladimir Karamurza now is, is a very close friend. Uh, to be honest, I think even this threat is better than nothing. Sure. But uh, Putin knows very well that there's really nothing that we can do. I don't know the real issue here. Maybe, maybe the import of your question is, do, do, you, make, do you make threats that you cannot carry out 
or you just then in that case leave the issue completely untouched. And Valodya Karamurza had a, an interesting article, I believe, in the Post um, the other day, where he said, well, you know, there were cases, Brezhnev, uh, Nixon, Carter, Brezhnev, Reagan, uh, I think even before Gorbachev, where on, in, in some instances, it really helped or at least saved the lives. So I think I'm just agnostic on that. Well, let's hope that that more optimistic read is the is the right one. Leon, thank you so much for taking a little time out of your day for, for us. Uh, we really value your insight. So thanks again. So I think the way we start this section is by saying, somebody asked the other person, so what happens next? There you go, Danny. What happens next? <laughs> Mark got the question in first. Thank you so much, Mark. I have many deep thoughts on this matter, as always. So I think if, if I'm Vladimir Putin, I think what happens next is a test because you really do want to see what Joe Biden's mettle is. And that is, I think, for Putin, the the best way to test him. And also now is the best moment because now is a moment when Biden is preoccupied by domestic issues, trying to spend your hard-earned tax dollars and mine and pretty much everybody else on the planet in order to reshape the economy of the United States for the next hundred years. He does not want to deal with Russian threats. He does not want to deal with Russian problems, whether they're in Ukraine or they're in colonial pipeline. He wants strategic stability. He wants strategic stability. So I think that now is a great moment, and I'll be very interested to watch this space. Yeah, so Biden said that he wants a predictable relationship with Russia, so uh, look for unpredictability. Putin's going to test him, and this is going to have implications because we always look at these issues through stovepipes, right? This is Russia Russia policy as distinct from China policy, as distinct from Iran policy, as distinct from terrorism policy. Guess what? The leader of North Korea is watching this summit and is watching what Putin does next. So is so does Xi Jinping in China. So are the leaders of Iran. So are uh, the leaders of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. So are the leaders of all of our adversaries around the world. And, you know, we need to show strength because weakness is provocative. And uh, there's going to be a test coming and we better pass it. Well, I certainly hope we do. And I think everybody hopes we do. Nobody roots for failure in the White House, no matter who is sitting there. At least they oughtn't Especially to. in foreign policy. Especially in foreign policy. So here is something we haven't yet talked about, but I think is an important coda to this discussion. And that is that in the G7 meeting, there was not that much talk, at least publicly, about Russia. There was a lot of talk about China. China made its way into the communique. China- um, Barely. Well, barely is right. But you beat me to it. What did you think about the steps on China? Um, so they failed to challenge China in any meaningful way. The, the number one thing that the Biden administration said publicly that they wanted to get out of the communique was a condemnation of China's use of Uyghur slave labor, and they couldn't get it. Because, they couldn't get it specifically. They yeah. got a condemnation of slave labor, but they weren't allowed to, they weren't allowed to mention me China. A, give me a break. Reminds- All the people using slave labor out there, wink, wink, Beijing. I mean, come on. No, give I know. Me it's a, a gutless, break. It's a gutless you know, moment. And that's because... You know, again, why why is Germany always the linchpin of weakness everywhere? I mean, it's like Germany is like kissing up to Vladimir Putin with their pipeline. Germany was fighting the Uyghur language because of their trade and investment deals with Beijing. And then, you know, they want it. They've they've taught they've got this talk of coming up with like an alternative to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. They forgot that Italy is part of the Belt and Road Initiative, that Italy signed a a memorandum of understanding with them. They're part of it. So Italy is going to be part of the answer to the initiative, which it is signed up to and is a part of. 
P.G. O'Rourke described uh, our European allies during the Cold War as Euroweenies, right? <laughs> the the Euroweenies are all we're always capitulating to to the Soviet Union, and now they're capitulating to China. Uh, so the idea that you know that this was the big move in the in the G7 summit was going to be to have a coalition of the world's democracies against autocracy, right? And yeah, all of them are have their hands in the pocket of the autocrat. Well, no, that's exactly right. I mean, fundamentally, our European allies are mercantilist before they are lovers of democracy. And that has that has long been the case. Just as and, long as we protect them. Right. Well, NATO's not going to protect them for long if they don't spend the money they need to spend. That's and, what Donald Trump was saying. Oh, Mark. That's, oh, you sound just like <laughs> Donald Trump. Shut up. <laughs> that's my new attack on you, Daddy. Is that, that sounds like something Donald Trump would say. Our late boss used to say, I would write you a letter, but I don't know how to spell and with that elegant <laughs> note, folks, hey, uh, to tease, we've got a great podcast for you as well next week on critical race theory, something Ooh. super interesting and a very, very interesting interview as well. So don't forget to listen, share your comments with us, review, subscribe, share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Take care. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.